You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. Coming up in this edition, how to diagnose and manage first trimester miscarriage. It is estimated that approximately 12 to 25% of clinically detected pregnancy end up in miscarriage. But firstly, tackling intimate partner and sexual violence against women. The World Health Organization has just released a report and clinical guidelines on the issue, describing it as a global health problem of epidemic proportions, which affects more than one third of all women globally. WHO also says medical staff are often the first professionals women who've been assaulted come into contact with. And even though women often don't disclose the violence when seeking care, healthcare providers are the professionals they most trust with this information. So what can doctors do? I asked Alex Sohal, a GP and RCGP clinical champion for domestic violence, and also Davina James-Hanman, Director of Against Violence and Abuse, a charity which works with statutory and voluntary bodies to improve their response to violence. Alex, from your perspective as a GP, do you see a lot of this in practice? Is this something that commonly comes up? I regularly see women who are are experiencing intimate partner violence and or sexual violence. I think the um, experience of GPs is going to vary. So I regularly come across GPs who say that they don't see patients who are experiencing intimate partner violence. And I think that's sometimes actually related to when they're asking. So women often won't spontaneously disclose their abuse. But if you're thinking about how women present and whether their presentations are related to intimate partner violence and you start thinking about it, then you will start identifying it. But I think the majority probably think of domestic and sexual violence as a social issue that occasionally impinges on their clinical consultations as opposed to a health issue. So if we are to think of this as a health issue, what are the, the health impacts? Many and legion. There is another project that I'm involved with called IRIS, which is specifically aimed at general practitioners. And this has developed a computer program that's installed on your computer. And every single time a health impact of domestic violence is mentioned in consultation, it pops up a reminder on your screen to ask about domestic violence. And there are 250 symptoms on that program. They're both emotional and physical. The most obvious one is kind of physical injuries, uh, but there's also long-term chronic health conditions, uh, depression. There are higher rates of other things that you wouldn't necessarily immediately associate with domestic violence, such as teenage pregnancy and repeated miscarriages or repeated terminations. Are there any others that you know should really be raising red flags for, for doctors? I think in terms of impact, there's, there's major groups. So we know that um, women who experience intimate partner violence are going to be at four to five times increased um, risk of having mental health effects. So that's not just depression, it's also presenting with anxiety symptoms, symptoms of post-traumatic stress, insomnia, sleeping problems, and also alcohol and, and drug use. They're at three to four times of increased risk of um, gynecological conditions. So they will often present with unexplained chronic pelvic pain, irregular vaginal bleeding, sexually transmitted infections or, or painful sex. And in pregnancy, women who've had multiple pregnancies or multiple terminations or, or both may be at increased risk of having experienced intimate partner violence. 
And then you mentioned the physical consequences. So in, in the UK, we know that two women a week die because of intimate partner violence. And about 10 to 30% of all injuries in women are due to the intimate partner violence. So if in an A&E setting, you see women who present with repeated trauma, with implausible, unlikely explanations, you know, you may want to consider and ask about abuse. Um, and then in general practice, you very rarely see women presenting with injuries. And you're much more likely to see women present with minor infectious illnesses, unexplained chronic pain such as headache and abdominal pain, and you know things like irritable bowel syndrome, dizziness, faintness. So it's a whole range of, sort of non-specific symptoms that we see in general practice every day. I mean, and there are some symptoms which, as um, Alex has just pointed out, are kind of more prevalent than others. When we know that pregnancy itself, in and of itself, is a risk factor for domestic violence to begin, or if it's already occurring, to increase in frequency and severity. We know that if there are injuries to the breast or the abdomen, that the odds are increased that they were caused within a domestic violence context. And of course, any kind of neck bruising is generally linked towards domestic violence. Mm. So the the WHO has just released these recommendations on reacting to these forms of violence. So could you just take us through what are the the headline messages that they have in terms of identification and and clinical care? They make uh, 34, 37 clinical recommendations, also recommendations about training and policy. But I think for the grassroots um, GP, they're really advocating selective clinical inquiry, which is again going back to looking at how women are presenting and considering the possibility and asking about um, the existence of intimate partner violence. They have a first level of psychological care for women, which is about ensuring that your consultations are are private. By that we mean that if there's a third party present we shouldn't be asking women about um, intimate partner violence. So even if there's family members who are maybe um, translating we shouldn't be asking women because it may put them at danger. Next thing about providing the primary level of care is ensuring confidentiality but making clear to women the limits of that confidentiality. Uh, Identifying and responding to intimate partner violence in general practice is very closely related to not just the compassionate but also effective and competent clinical management of common conditions that we see in general practice every day. So for example if one if I see a woman who has symptoms of depression I think it's important to ask about whether she's experiencing intimate partner violence. If you don't ask that question, don't recognise it exists, and you just give the woman a prescription or give her antidepressants, I think you're sending a very powerful message to her that, yes, we're, we're concerned about your depression, but we are not concerned about whether there's any intimate partner violence there. The next message from that is that society doesn't really care about the intimate partner violence, that we can't do anything about it. And do you have any tips or advice for, for doctors on communicating with women and listing this information from them. Obviously you talked about making sure that other family members aren't at the, the consultation. As this is a very sensitive issue, how do you talk to them about it? I think there are some key messages which all professionals, health and otherwise, ought to be giving to women because this is what women tell us that they need to hear, which is that you're not alone. You're very brave to tell me you don't have to put up with this there is help available and most importantly of all I believe you because invariably the abuser will have told her over and over again there's no point in you telling anyone no one will believe you I'm much more credible than you and sadly many times the state apparatus actually does end up siding with the abuser and thus proving his point 
Yeah, and as well as saying I believe you, the other point to say this isn't your fault because I think the majority of these women will have been made to believe that it's something that they've done wrong um, and that's why they deserve this violence and other women are not treated like this by their partners but this is your fault. And I think um, in general practice especially, one sees these women repeatedly and I think it's an ongoing chronic thing where you're repeatedly telling them this isn't your fault despite what your partner has told you and it's only when women begin to believe that they they can think about being proactive and I, I think I would add something to that around how you ask is very important so I tend to if I'm asking a woman that I don't know um, about whether or not she's experiencing domestic violence I tend not to use the term domestic violence or intimate partner violence um, because lots of women don't identify with that terminology so I will ask about you know does you are you ever afraid of your partner how do you deal with conflict in your relationship is there anybody in your home that you're scared of those kind of questions um, which women are much more likely to end up disclosing domestic violence because you haven't asked them that term that they're not identifying with. So, so what are the next steps from that um, that consultation then? I mean, are there charity resources available for women? Are there any other...? I think it, it very much depends on your setting. You know, the WHO has got a global audience. Strength is it's, um, it's laying out a range of options that medical staff have and then it's accepting that in different settings there'll be different resources available and individual countries will need to think about how they can adapt these guidance. But, um, you know, in the UK there's, there are a range of options very you can talk more about how those options are decreasing aren't they yes there has been a lot of work carried out over the last 20 years to try and make sure that there is some domestic violence provision available in every area of the uk which hasn't been wholly successful but there should be a domestic violence service in the area the most obvious one is women's aid and refuge who run together the national domestic violence helpline there is also a national network of refuges uh, which is safe accommodation where a woman can go and stay with her children in most areas of the country now there is also a local idva service which stands for independent domestic violence advisors um, and they work with very high risk clients to put in place safety plans but even if your client isn't a high-risk client you can normally find out about other domestic violence provision in your locality through the IDVA service. There's also in most areas a panel called a MARAC which stands for multi-agency risk assessment conferences who again only deal with high-risk cases but that's where all the agencies sit around the table and contribute what they can towards reducing the risk for that particular woman and her children. If GPs or indeed any health professionals professional don't know about local service provision then one of the easiest ways to locate that is to contact your local police station as most police forces in the UK now have specialist investigative units for domestic violence and as part of their work they tend to maintain a current directory of local services. So are doctors under any obligation to to link up with social services or the police or the criminal justice system? What advice would you give here? They're not under a legal obligation, although one could make a case for there being a moral obligation. We know that you are most likely to have a positive impact when intervening in domestic violence if you deliver three things. Because when you're experiencing domestic violence, you have housing problems. There are quite often money concerns around if I leave, what will I live on? There are concerns around the children and that the access the abuser may continue to have to you through the children once you've 
left that relationship. There may be concerns around substance use and so on and so forth, and that you're much more likely to be effective if you intervene on three of those issues. You know, we're not expecting GPs or indeed any health professional to do everything, so they deliver one piece of the puzzle and they need to work with other local partners to deliver those other bits of the puzzle. In most areas across the UK now, there are multi-agency partnerships for trying to make those interventions work. Great, Okay. And obviously, listeners and doctors can go away and and read those WHO guidelines. But are there any other resources that you think are particularly useful? The RCGP has got e-modules about violence against women and children. So that's quite a useful resource that you can use in your own home. There's also a a range of resources which my own organisation has produced where we have specialised over the past decade or so looking specifically at the intersection of drugs, alcohol and domestic violence and that's a project within my project called the Stella Project and more recently we've been looking at the intersection of mental health, domestic violence and um, substance use and we've just this week launched a new e-learning module and all of those resources are available on our website. Great. Well, Alex and Davina, thanks very much for coming in and sharing your expertise. Thank, Thank you. you. And links to all the resources mentioned there are on the podcast page. Next up, BMJ Assistant Editor Sophie Cook looks into treating and managing first trimester miscarriage. I'm here with Devor Yurkovich, Consultant Gynaecologist at University College London Hospital. Today we'll be talking about his most recent clinical review in the BMJ on the diagnosis and management of first trimester miscarriage. Devor, hello, thank you for coming. Hello. Devor, can you explain what you mean by first trimester miscarriage? First trimester is, is miscarriage which occurs in the first three months of pregnancy and we differentiate first from second trimester miscarriage because the causes and epidemiology of first and second trimester loss is very different. So the most common causes in the first trimester are chromosomal abnormalities and miscarriages. The vast majority of miscarriages occur in the first three months. Miscarriages occur later are caused by different abnormalities, usually congenital abnormalities of the uterus, cervical weakness, and sometimes infection, and, and they are managed very differently. So in, in, in clinical practice, it is quite useful um, to differentiate between these two types of miscarriage. Okay. Can you tell us a bit about how common first trimester miscarriage is? It is very common. How common it is exactly, we don't know, because we believe that majority of pregnancy losses tend to occur before period is missed and before a urine pregnancy test becomes positive. But it is estimated that approximately 12 to 25% of clinically detected pregnancy end up in miscarriage. That's quite high. And can you tell us a bit about how women might present with a suspected miscarriage? What should doctors be on the lookout for? The typical presentation of miscarriage is mild vaginal bleeding and a period like pain. And the vast majority of women with miscarriages will present like that. Uh, There is a phase in the natural history of miscarriage when women are asymptomatic and they may suspect miscarriage because of loss of pregnancy symptoms. Mm -hmm. And they will often consult their GPs or seek help from their local early pregnancy unit. In some women, miscarriage remains clinically silent and is detected typically on ultrasound scan at 12 weeks when women tend to attend for their routine nuchal translucency and, and first anomaly scan. Can you explain to us what, what happens to a woman if she's referred to a gynaecology unit with some mild vaginal bleeding? Take us through what investigations you will consider in order to confirm or refute miscarriage. The practice 
varies to some extent between different units. And in my unit, which is localized in central London, we will accept women without referral. So we will accept any woman who is concerned about pregnancy, has bleeding or pain, or has particular concerns as a history of previous ectopic pregnancy or previous miscarriages. Um, some units are more restrictive. They will see only women following consultation referral from their GPs. Some early pregnancy units will impose uh, limits of gestational age, so they're not going to see women perhaps before six or seven weeks of gestation. There's obviously controversy, which is the most appropriate referral strategy, but I believe that uh, open access is probably the best and most effective because the only way to assess women and give them a confident diagnosis of pregnancy being normal or perhaps having a miscarriage is an ultrasound scan. And, and clinical examination, although it's very useful in detecting uh, women who have a miscarriage which, which is progressing, a miscarriage which is complicated by heavy bleeding and sometimes tissue being present in the cervix, in most women, clinical examination cannot actually resolve diagnostic issues. What will you be looking for in the ultrasound when somebody presents in early pregnancy with bleeding? Well, it's important to remember that majority of women who present with bleeding and pain will still have normal pregnancy. So in, in most women, we are going to use ultrasound scan to reassure them that pregnancy is normal. If pregnancy is abnormal, we may expect to see gestational sac, which may or may not contain an embryo. And then we are going to look for signs of cardiac activity. And, and in some cases, we will see well-defined embryo, which may have fetus such as arms and legs, but there wouldn't be any evidence of cardiac activity, in which, in which case we will diagnose miscarriage. In some women who present later in the natural history of miscarriage, we will see small amount of tissue in the uterus and not a well-defined gestational sac or an embryo. Diagnosis in these cases is, is more difficult and sometimes requires follow-up and backup with, uh, with, with blood tests to measure serum ACG or progesterone. And can you just expand a little bit more on the role of HCG and progesterone in that situation? HCG is a hormone which is produced by placental tissue and levels will vary depending on the natural history of miscarriage. So in normal pregnancy at the beginning, HCG levels will rise. Then when miscarriage um, occurs, the placenta stops to develop and HCG level becomes static and then they will eventually decline. So difficulties when we do a single blood test, we do not know at which point in natural history we are uh, measuring ACG. And also, if you look at the serial measurements, it's very hard to determine whether we are looking at miscarriage in the early, early stage of development or in the later stage. So that's, that's the reason why ACG is only used if ultrasound scan is not helpful. When miscarriage is confirmed, what are the management options available to women? Well, not so long ago about 25, 30 years ago, the only management of miscarriage in hospital was surgical management. And women who came with bleeding and, and pain were routinely offered surgery to, to, to remove pregnancy. It is policy which is outdated and it's not entirely safe because a clinical diagnosis of miscarriage is not very accurate. And it is inevitable that some women who may present with quite severe pain and bleeding will still have normal pregnancy. So over the last quarter of the century, practices evolved. So all women who present with relatively mild symptoms, such as bleeding and, and mild uh, abdominal pain, will be offered initial expected management. Expected management is uh, appealing to women, avoid medical interventions, and follows natural history of miscarriage. And if um, women are managed expectantly, 
about 60-70% will have a complete miscarriage within two weeks of follow-up. Some women, however, would prefer more active intervention. Some women would prefer surgery because of their social pressures, family issues, and they would like the process to be concluded more quickly, in which case they can be offered surgical procedure either under general aesthetic in the operating theater or in the clinic under local anesthesia using a technique called manual vacuum aspiration. The third option is medical treatment, which is also a form of active management. Involves giving women medication, misoprostol, which is most effective when given transvaginally. And about 20-30% of women will choose medical management if given that option. It is a safe, relatively effective, but it has some side effects, particularly nausea and gastrointestinal symptoms. And effectiveness is about 60% for early form of miscarriage called early fetal demise. In women who have incomplete miscarriages, medical management doesn't really add to success of, of, of treatment. So in women who have incomplete miscarriages, we tend to use expected management rather than medical management, unless women prefer surgery, of course. What are the risks associated with the different management options? Well, every management option has some strengths and some weaknesses. Expected management is free from anesthetic, surgical, and medical risks, but it is not uh, always effective. And sometimes follow-up uh, takes two or three weeks until a pregnancy resolves completely. It is also not so effective in early form of miscarriage, early fetal demise, and it's much better for women who have incomplete miscarriages. Medical management is not always effective. It's much less effective than surgery and has side effects, which we already mentioned, mainly nausea, diarrhea, temperature, and abdominal pain. Surgery is most effective form of, of, of treatment because success rate is the highest and recovery is relatively quick because most women bleed only for a few days after the operation. But there are significant surgical risks associated with the procedure, first risk of anesthesia, and uh, there is also risk of surgical injury, uh, usually perforation, which may occasionally lead to um, more extensive surgery such as laparoscopy, laparotomy, and occasionally result in severe complications such as bowel or vascular injury. There's also some concern about uh, scarring of the uterine cavity after the operation. It is not a very common complication, but nevertheless significant because management of scarring can be very difficult and sometimes not entirely successful. After a miscarriage, what advice should women be given, for example, about when they can start to try for pregnancy again? Most miscarriages do occur because of a um, pregnancy itself be, being abnormal. So chromosomal defects are most common cause of miscarriage. And for that reason, we do not routinely investigate women who present with one or two miscarriages, uh, which occur sporadically. Following miscarriage, uh, it is natural for women to go through a period of grieving, which is different. Some women, it may last for a few days, and some women, it may be longer. It's very important to recognize that some women may suffer depression and they may grieve for a long time and they should be offered uh, additional support, either psychological support or additional counseling. Menstrual periods tend to occur within a month or two after miscarriage. And we tend to encourage women to try for pregnancy as soon as they feel emotionally and psychologically ready to, to do so. Um, there is some evidence from studies, particularly from Scotland, that women who conceive within six months of, uh, of miscarriage tend to have better outcome in the future in terms of uh, healthy and normal pregnancies compared to those women who delay pregnancy for more than six months.
Can you just explain a little bit about information available to women who've had a miscarriage and support associations available for them? Miscarriage is always a stressful event and it's very important to provide women with written information about the causes of miscarriage, available management options and about the ways to, to cope with the pregnancy loss and prepare themselves for future pregnancy. And every early pregnancy unit should provide such information to, to women. And there are also additional sources of support such as miscarriage association, association of the pregnancy unit, MumsNet, there are many internet forums which many women may find helpful. Uh, in sharing their experience, learning from other women how to cope with the miscarriage and how to prepare themselves for, for future pregnancies. Some women require additional counseling and support and occasionally women who suffer from depression or they find it difficult to, to come to terms with pregnancy loss may be referred to psychologists which are available in large hospitals and they may benefit from more uh, in-depth counseling and psychological support. And finally, in my experience, women often feel they are to blame or are very concerned that they've done something wrong to cause the miscarriage. I just wondered if there is any evidence about ways to prevent miscarriage or to reduce the likelihood of subsequent miscarriages. Well, as we, as we said initially, the most common cause of mm. miscarriage are chromosomal abnormalities, which are to some extent chance events, and they are they're extremely common. And it is important to convey this message to women that the problem actually started at the time of conception and uh, there was nothing in the way they behaved, there was nothing in their diet or perhaps sometimes simple medication like paracetamol they took which has caused uh, problems. The women who are overweight sometimes may feel that being overweight causes miscarriage which is not true and also though smoking alcohol are generally discouraged and they are harmful to women's health there is no direct link between alcohol consumption, smoking and caffeine and miscarriage. Of course, if, if any of these substances is used in excessive uh, amounts, it can harm pregnancy, but this is very small minority of women and there is no strong scientific evidence to, mm-hmm. to, to support this. Duffel, thank you very much. Thank you, Sophie. More details on this issue are available in Dr Yurkovich's accompanying clinical review. Now up on the education channel of bmj.com. That wraps it up for this edition. Next Friday, we'll be asking why older people are often excluded from clinical research. So come back then. Thanks for joining us. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.